Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. I've been longing to say that for a long time. And happy Advent to you. Happy Advent season. Um, it's our tradition here at the Gathering Church to spend the Advent season reflecting on how the incarnation and the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us in the last year. And it's a tradition of many churches around the world and Christians over the ages to spend this season uh, particularly slowing down and reflecting on all that God has done for us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation means that when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Not some kind of partial mixture of each. And if that's true, that God broke into human history, was born of a woman, was made like us in every way but did not sin, if it's true that Jesus grew up and became the true and rightful king of Israel to sit on the throne of David because he was the promised heir in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. If it's true that he is the Messiah, the true prophet, the rightful king, the final priest. And if it's true that he lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God. And in our place, died a sinner's death as a substitute. Suffering and taking on the full wrath of God, which was the punishment for all of our sin. If that's true, then the incarnation of Jesus Christ must have a radical impact on our lives. And so at Advent season, we have the opportunity to slow down and reflect on how this man's life has changed us and continues to change us. This week, we're going to look at a, this, this uh, month, rather, we're going to look at a four-part series called The Promised Son. The promised son. And we're going to look at how these promises, these promised figures throughout the scriptures, affect our lives as Christians. So that's what we're going to be talking about in these four uh, short weeks during Advent. And a lot of the sermon, and a lot of these sermons are going to be, uh, they're going to try to bring application forth in the form of questions. Questions that you can take home, questions you can write, questions you can ask yourself throughout the week about how has this man, this man Jesus Christ, and how have these figures in the scriptures changed us? Because part of what you're going to see throughout this series and part of the way that we teach and preach all the time is that the Bible is telling one story. The Bible is telling the story about how God is redeeming the world through his son Jesus Christ for the, to the praise of his glory. And so each of these sons that we're looking at are types and shadows and pictures and foretastes and give us more of a glimpse into the character and person and work of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to look at two figures, Trick, Armas Sons, uh, coming at the end of Genesis chapter 49 and 50. At the end of Genesis chapter 49 and 50, we're going to look at the promise and the blessing that's given to Judah, and we're going to look at the promise and the blessing that's given to Joseph. Because these two figures, in a sense, Joseph receives a double blessing, right? And the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. These two become the prominent figures in Israel's life as we make our way through the kingdom dynasties. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. 
Then we're going to read from 22 to 26, and then we'll jump over to chapter 50 and read 15 to 21. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. This is Jacob's pronouncement of blessing on his sons before he's going to die. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Not the ruler's staff from between its feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Down to 22. This is now the blessing on Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who has set him apart from his brothers. I'm going to turn the page. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when he spoke to them, when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And this is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask God... That as we step into this Advent season, anticipating the coming of our Lord Jesus, we pray that we would reflect and we would see how this gospel, this good news, radically changes us from the inside out. Help us to see glimpses in both Judah's blessing and in Joseph's blessing and example to us about the radical nature of grace and the incarnation of the Son of God. Help us now, help me as I preach, in Jesus' name, amen. Point one, forgiving grace. Point one, forgiving grace. Let me tell the story in brief to catch us up to what's happened to get to this point. 
In brief, I'll remind you the story of Joseph, that Joseph was the second youngest of all of Jacob's sons, starting back now in Genesis chapter 37. And Jacob had a particular affection on Joseph that made his older brothers jealous of him. And so in the older brothers' jealousy, they sold him into slavery and they lied to their father, Jacob. The older brothers told Jacob that Joseph had been attacked by wild animals and was killed. But this set into motion a tremendous journey for Joseph. He would find himself sometimes in prison. He would find himself on the run for fear of being accused of adultery. It was a tremendous journey. But God was with this man because of his ability to have spiritual insight. And God was with this man because he was a tremendous, gifted manager and administrator. And so this man, Joseph, would actually rise to be the second in command in all of Pharaoh's kingdom, the vice regent in Egypt. And this would happen over a very long period of time. Many of these adult years would be spent on this journey. But like every good story, this one has a good plot twist. Because years later, there would be a famine in the land of Canaan, where Jacob and Joseph's brothers who had sold him to slavery were finding themselves desperate, desperate for food. And so Jacob sends his sons to go down to Egypt and to plead with Pharaoh and to plead with his kingdom to give them some kind of relief from this famine. And they're courted into this room and they don't know that it's their older or their younger brother, Joseph. And they plead with him for mercy and for food. There's more details to the story. But ultimately what happens is that Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They embrace, they reconcile, They send for Jacob, this patriarch. They move the whole family down to Egypt. Pharaoh grants them the land of Goshen to be the place where they can be shepherds. They're shown favor because of this miraculous and tremendous journey of this man, Joseph. So our text today, as I said at the beginning, is Jacob's, this patriarch's dying words to his sons. And he does something pretty remarkable that we didn't read, but it occurs in the previous chapter. And in a sense, Joseph receives a double blessing. Because Joseph receives the blessing for his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. He receives a double blessing. So we must ask ourselves, to get into application here, why is that the case? Why did Jacob choose to give this kind of blessing to his son Joseph? Look again with me in 49.22. He says he's a fruitful tree. He's a fruitful tree that's been planted by a spring. And this tree is so fruitful, it says, as that the branches run up and over a wall. And I think what he gives to us in 23 and 24 is the reason why he's such a fruitful tree. The reason why he's such a fruitful tree to be planted by this stream, this spring of water, and why his branches grow up above this wall. And the answer, I think, is in verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him 
severely. This is the pursuit of his brothers. This is all the pain, this is all the hardship that Joseph endured these last 20 years. Being sold into slavery by his brothers, being found in an Egyptian prison, being accused of adultery, and so on and so forth. And it's saying that through all these trials, through all these hardships, through, through warriors attacking him, what seemed like, like arrows from an archer, he remained steadfast. And ultimately, in the greatest act of grace, he forgives his brothers. He's a fruitful tree planted by a string of water. He's thriving, and he thrives in an unexpected, backward sort of way. He could have licked his wounds. He could have said, you guys are out of your mind. You guys tried to kill me, okay? You had me just destitute for dead. But instead, instead he extends reconciliation, forgiveness, and grace to his brothers. And his blessing of being this fruitful tree alongside this fruitful spring comes on the other side of it. By granting forgiveness and extending reconciliation, when he had all the chips, this is what actually transformed him to be a great man. You know, there's a place <clears throat> where uh, Archibald Alexander, who was the first professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, he was reflecting and describing an aspect of the Christian life. And this was written in 1844, okay? He says, It seems desirable to ascertain as precisely as we can the reasons why Christians commonly are so diminutive a stature and so feeble a strength in their religion. There is in a defect our belief in the freeness of divine grace. There is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without the practical belief and grace at all, but it possesses none of the characteristics of the Christian life. It is found to exist in the rankest growth and system of religion which are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is acknowledged in theory, so often it is not practically felt or even acted upon. The new convert lives upon his frames rather than on Jesus, while the older Christian is still found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations of success. He becomes discouraged and then sinks into gloom and despondency. Here I am persuaded is the root of the evil. Until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, practically the grace of God as manifested to us in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians. That's a long quote to say that the essence of growth in the Christian life, the essence to growth in being a Christian, is a vigorous understanding of the gospel of grace. What Archibald Alexander is acknowledging almost 200 years ago is that there is a sense in which we could have familiarized ourselves with the Bible for weeks, years, even decades, and not truly know what it's about. There can be a way in which we know a lot of its content, but don't understand its meaning or purpose. There is an understanding of the Scriptures that doesn't really know what it's about. But the whole point of the Bible is to reveal to us God's plan to glorify himself by redeeming a people through his son, Jesus Christ. The whole point 
is for this God of glory to be seen and embraced most clearly in his grace towards sinners. The greatness and majesty of God being revealed in the saving work of the man, Jesus Christ. When did that happen for you? When was it laid upon your heart that the purposes of the scriptures is to reveal to us the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Listen to Paul in Colossians. I'll circle this back, don't worry. It has something to do with Joseph, don't worry. Listen to Paul in Colossians. Of this you've heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. To understand the revelation of the scriptures is to understand the grace of God in truth. If we're not understanding the nature of the scriptures and the stories and the message of the Bible in light of God's gospel of grace towards us, we're not understanding it. We're not understanding it. And what we get in this picture of Joseph is the radical nature of forgiving grace. Extending an undeserved grace towards his brothers who didn't deserve it and redeeming his people back to a place where they, can even, where they can actually eat food. And in the man Joseph, we have a picture pointing us to the true promised son. The promised son who would extend a forgiving grace far more radical than a forgiving grace to brothers who tried to sell you into slavery. A forgiving grace that extended to people who actually crucified him and nailed him to the cross. And on that cross, in his dying breath, he says, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's how this man Joseph is pointing us to the true promised son. So application. Advent application. Simple question. Have you seen the center of the Bible more clearly this year? Has the person and work And grace of Jesus Christ been more evident to you this year as you look at God through his word. To understand the scriptures is to understand the radical nature of the saving, forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. Let's look a little closer again. Now we're in Genesis 50, verses 15 to 20. So Joseph and his brothers have just buried their father, and as soon as the brothers see that uh, Jacob is dead, they're immediately afraid. They must have thought that his forgiveness that he had extended earlier earlier on was, I don't know, half-hearted, maybe it was fake altogether, but they're scared to death. They don't believe that 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 it's real. And they say, they basically, what, they, what they're basically saying is, hey, don't forget that right before dad died, he says that you need to be nice to us. <laughs> That's basically what they say in verse 17. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And what's Joseph's response at the end of verse 17? He weeps. He weeps. 
Because he sees in them a lack of understanding of the radical nature of forgiving grace. I did forgive you. You don't have to come up to me and remind me of the promise that dad made you make right before, I, right before he died. You guys. And it moves him so deeply that it actually brings him to tears. To not understand the radical nature of forgiving grace brings Joseph to tears. And if that's true with Joseph, who just points us, who just points us to the man Jesus Christ, how much more? Does Jesus look at his finished work on the cross and we still try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and not see the radical nature of the forgiving grace of the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place? And then he says something remarkable. I mean, we could spend multiple sermons on what's being said here in 19, 20, and 21, but I'm going to give it to you in brief. But Joseph said to them three things. Do not fear, am I in the place of God? Two, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And three, don't fear, I will provide you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Listen to Derek Kidner, the great commentator on this passage. He's talking specifically about verses 19, 20, and 21. It's a short quote. Each sentence of this threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writings of wrongs to God, to see his providence in man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. These are attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. Three things. Leave the writings of wrongs to God. God's hand is even in man's malice. And when we respond with forgiveness, that must also be accompanied with practical affection. Let's just go through them real brief. Verse 19. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You know, there's a sense in which when we withhold forgiveness... We allow people to look to us to give them something only God was meant to give them. Think about it. When we withhold forgiveness from people, we are allowing them to look to us to give to them something only God could give. We are not in the place of God. It is not our place to withhold forgiveness. God is the rightful judge. Our sins are first and foremost against God. And God is the only one that can truly extend to somebody the forgiveness that they need to actually clear their conscience, to actually give them hope of forgiveness, of salvation, of redemption. And when we withhold that from people, in some ways we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're preventing that conduit of grace and forgiveness to go to another human being. We're actually enabling that person to some degree look to us for the forgiveness and hope that they can only receive from God. I know it's a bit counterintuitive, but our forgiveness into someone's life can actually make room for them to come and deal with the forgiveness that they truly need to receive from God through Jesus Christ. There's another way this looks. I was thinking about this this week. In marriage... Sometimes, and even in the best of marriages, we need to gently say to our spouse, very gently, okay, we don't need to, you know, rip our clothes in, in, in sackcloth and ash, and ash, but 
You don't need to look to me for what only God can give you. You don't need to look to me for what only God can give you. I can see that there is a way in which I can do it. I know how I do it with, with, with my spouse, and I see the subtle ways in which she does it with me. There's a way in which our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts desire some kind of acceptance, some kind of joy, some kind of security, some kind of comfort, some kind of control. And it's easy to oftentimes get that on some level from a spouse. But in the most healthy of Christian marriages, we need to sometimes suggest to our spouse, don't look to me for what only God can give you. Now, that can be a cop-out when we're just acting like idiots as husbands, right? But, but I think the principle generally bears true. Second, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Boy, we could spend, <laughs> we could spend hours and sermons and weeks discussing and pushing this reality into us. But let's just remember Let's just remember that the greatest truth of Christianity is not just the eradication of evil, but that God can bring about good from even evil itself. And if that's true on the cross of Jesus Christ, the most treasonous and wicked of events in all of human history, the murdering of the innocent Son of God, the most evil of acts, brought about a good, and in some ways brought about the greatest good in our lives. If it's true on the macro level, in some sense we have to believe and apply it on the micro level. That even the trials that you're enduring right now, even the difficulties that you're enduring right now, God is using them for your good. The greatest hope of Christianity isn't just the eradication of evil but that God brings about good even from evil things. And you might not see it right now. You probably don't. I mean, we're talking about Joseph. This is, this is 20 years later that he says this. I, I don't think if someone quoted Romans 8.28 to him when he was in the pit, he would have been like, oh, okay, cool, great. Not that it wasn't true, but it took the experience of actually walking through it to taste and seeing that God is good. And third, true forgiveness. Not only does it repay evil with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. That one's probably the hardest for me. To not just actually forgive somebody, but to then desire to seek their good. Probably the easiest place to see this in life, or most often place to see this in life, is with kids, is with children, parents to children. So often when, we've, when I have been frustrated with my kids, lost my temper, raised my voice, and gone back to them and sought forgiveness, repented of what I've done, they've so quickly embraced me with affection. You receive an affection, you receive a kind of embrace that you just almost don't feel like you should deserve. So those three things is what marks Joseph's reply to his brother's desire for forgiveness. Leave all the writings of wrongs to God. See God's providence even in man's malice. And repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. So here's the application question. 
It's pretty basic again. Has your life been marked by this kind of forgiveness this year? Have you received this kind of forgiveness this year? Sometimes these questions are challenging when we look over the last year of our lives. Sometimes we had a really rough year, and the answer is, I don't know. There's grace. Has the last two years of your life, the last three years of your life, the last five years of your life, the last five years of your life, in some way been more marked by forgiveness and reconciliation? That's the first point. The second one is this coming joy that we get to look at when we look at Judah. This coming joy that Judah points us to. So if you want to turn back to 49, 8 to 12. Something's going to happen at about 10b. The first two and a half verses seem to be talking about uh, Judah's reign and the, and the extension of his kingship. But then something's going to happen in 10b that's going to get pretty global and expansive in nature as you read it. So let's look at that. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Okay, he says he's going to be the greatest among them. All right, he's going to be uh, the one in whom will have victory over his enemies. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. He's fierce. He's strong. He's going to have control. He's going to have authority. He's going to be victorious. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stoops down. He crouches as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Who's going to want to stand up to you? I'm pronouncing a strong blessing of victory over your life. And then he says how? He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the king's rightly staff. He says, the kingdom, the kingship will belong to your line after you, Judah. And we see that when we come to King David, he's of the line of Judah. The ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes. That word until. Once we get to this word until, it starts to get pretty expansive in nature. Until tribute comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Listen to Kidner describe 11 and 12 again. Every line of these verses speak of exuberant, intoxicating abundance. It is the golden age of the one who is coming, whose universal reign will be seen by all. It is deliberately the language of excess. He says, with talk of vines used as hitching posts for donkeys and wines as washing water, it is, in its own material terms, it bids adieu to a pinched regime of thorns and sweat for the shout of them that triumph, the song of them that feast. You see that 
He's talking about using wine to wash your clothes. That there's going to be so much choice wine that we're just going to use it to do the dishes with. He says we're going to tie our donkeys up to even these vineyards. Well, they would likely just eat it or destroy it or pull them down or something. He said there's such exuberant abundance in the golden age of the coming one. It's a time that's marked by great and exceeding joy. And then he says this. It is remarkable that Jesus announced the coming age in just this imagery at his first sign at Cana at Galilee. That the first thing Jesus Christ does, the first miracle that he does in Cana and Galilee is he turns water into wine. If you were inventing a story about Jesus, would you make this story at Canaan Galilee to be the first story about his greatness, his power, and his majesty? Because it seems like it's just a mere catering disaster, right? And yet, the Lord of all makes his first miracle in John's gospel at a wedding feast in Cana that ran out of wine, He's showing that his coming, his appearing, his showing up on the scene is the beginning of the inbreaking of this golden age of joy and feasting. He says that this is the first of his miracles. This is the first place that Jesus tells us who he is and what is he going to do. And what does he do? He doesn't raise someone from the dead. He produces 150 gallons of wine to keep the party going. He's the master of the banquet. He's the Lord of the feast. He is the true and final Lord of the feast. It says in Isaiah 25 that on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all mountains. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The promise given to Judah is that there would be such exuberant feasting and joy and abundance at the culmination of his kingdom. And Jesus picks up on this imagery in the very beginning of John's gospel to say the coming of that kind of feasting is here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The whole scriptures are pointing us to this Lord of the feast where there will be exuberant joy and feasting at his coming. That's the aim. That's the aim of the Bible, that we would know this Lord of the feast, know the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And these two men, these two men, Judah and Joseph, are pointing us towards him. They're showing us glimpses of who he's like, what he's like, and what his kingdom is going to be like. But there's something else that you need to know as we think about drawing this to a conclusion. And we sang about it several times this morning. We sang about it several times this morning.
that in order for him to be the lion that describes Judah, he must first become a lamb. If he's going to be the lion who will conquer all his enemies, if he's going to be the lion that will bring everlasting joy and feasting, he must first become the lion. Revelation chapter 5 is what we read for our scripture reading this morning. Let's look at part of it again. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and he has opened the scrolls with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all, all the earth. We sang it this morning. Our God is a lion. Our God is a lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before him. I think my favorite sermon in all of church history is called The Diverse Excellencies. I think it's called The Excellencies of Christ. But it's about the diverse excellencies that we see in the man Jesus Christ. To be called a lion and to be called a lamb. Listen to Edwards. He is called a lion. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He seems to be called the lion of the tribe of Judah in allusion to what Jacob said in his blessing of the tribe on his deathbed. Judah's, Judah's lion is a cub from my, the prey, my son. You've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and an old lion. Who shall rouse him? And also to the standard of the camp of Judah in the wilderness, on which was displayed a lion, according to the ancient tradition of the Jews. It is much on account of the valiant acts of David and the tribe of Judah, on which David was, and in Jacob's prophetical blessing compared to a lion, but more especially with an eye to Jesus Christ, who was also of that tribe, who was descended of David, and our next text will be called the root of David, and therefore Christ here is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also called a lamb. John was told of a lion that had prevailed to open the book, and probably expected to see a vision of a lion when he saw the one open the book. But while he was expecting, behold, a lamb appears to open the book. An exceedingly diverse kind of creature from a lion. A lion is a devourer, one that won't, is wont to make terrible slaughter of others. And a no creature more easily falls prey to him than a lamb. And so Christ here is represented not only as a lamb, a creature very liable to be slain, but as a lamb that had been slain. That is, with the marks of deadly wounds appearing on it. He's the lion who overcomes with victory and power, and he's the lamb, the lamb who was slain. He overcomes through his life and his death. The reason that he can be the Lord of the feast 
the reason that he can be that for you and I, that he can bring us great joy, the reason that we can anticipate that exceedingly abundant kind of joy that's talked about in the prophecy to Judah is that because he became a lamb. He suffered in our place. He took the penalty of sin in our place and on our behalf so that to us can flow this Lord of feasts blessings. And that's what we look forward to in this Advent season. So last, last question, and then we'll close. Last application question. Has your life been in some way more marked by the joy that comes to us from the Lord of the feast? By savoring him both as lion and as lamb. Because I think that's the key. The key to savoring him as the Lord of the feast is to see him as both. That he is the lion that overcomes, but he does it by the means of a lamb for your sake. He overcomes through the ultimate act of weakness and sacrifice. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let us pray.